you for listening to the fourth episode of the Out of Bounds podcast brought to you by F News Magazine. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ben Kim Penalty Box Pepleham. Oh, we got more nicknames this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's going to be my thing uh, coming up with the new nickname every oh, week. Oh, I mean, hey, bring the listeners back. Uh, I'm Catherine Petrine, one of the other co-hosts. I'm, I'm Aiden Bryant. I'm the final co-host. I'm not the least. Thank you. Well, maybe you are the least because you keep on refusing to come up with a nickname for yourself. What was Kat's nickname? She have one? Yeah. Cat. What's your nickname? Oh, well, that's that. It's just Cat. Listen, we got to keep it simple. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Fair. Well, all right. I'm already being attacked. This is great. You could come up with a great nickname, though. Your last name is Brian. True. We're going to come back. But next, that's for another next episode. week. I'm going to debut my nickname. <laughs> that's going to become a running thing, also. Tune in next week. Yeah, tune in next week for Aiden's uh, nickname as well. It just never happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, today we got a special episode for y'all. Uh, it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be about something I know nothing about, and that is Russian hockey. And Kat's going to take the lead and tell you all the secrets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Last episode was a really fun episode. We had our, you know, our jersey bracket of our best jerseys. It was some knockout fights. That was a really fun episode. Check it out if you haven't listened to it already. This is a little bit more serious. Um, I'm going to be talking about Russian hockey, as Ben said. Aiden is going to jump in also with Russian MMA. And kind of the reason that we settled on this topic is because something has happened in the hockey world concerning Artemi Panarin. He was a high profile and very successful Russian hockey player. He currently plays for the New York Rangers. Um, and a Russian political, potentially a smear campaign. No one's really sure, but we're going to break that down. So we're going to start with the most recent of events, but there's a lot here. So on February 22nd, 2021, Artemi Panarin announced that he was taking a leave of absence. And so he left the Rangers for a little bit and he actually went back to Russia. And the reason this happened is because breaking news, it came out that a Russian tabloid um, basically published an article in which his former coach, um, Andre Nazarov, accused Panarin of um, attacking an 18-year-old woman in a Latvian hotel bar 10 years ago. That's a really serious accusation. So he took a leave of absence. He went back to Russia to deal with it. And kind of it was an interesting situation. The times that um, allegations like this have arisen, just in general in the NHL um, or in any sport, generally the feeling is that they're probably true, or at the very least where there's smoke, there's fire, right? Um, You know, we've seen uh, major sports leagues have issues with domestic violence or whatever. but this was kind of an interesting situation in that the Rangers very quickly issued a statement um, denying the allegations, really, really um, put it forth that they supported Panarin. Um, the, even in, you know, going so far as to saying, and I'm quoting directly from their press release, quote, this is clearly an intimidation tactic being used against him for being outspoken on recent political events, end quote. So they stood behind him, his teammates stood behind him, um, 
former teammates, you know, from when this allegation was supposedly, you know, had, had occurred, came out and said, this did not happen. We didn't, we don't remember this. Our time in Panarin would not do this. And so we're kind of left with this strange situation of there are these really serious allegations coming out of a Russian tabloid. Panarin has left the country to go deal with these allegations. And these allegations may have come forth, not because they are true, but because Panarin has repeatedly been outspoken politically against Putin. He has um, supported Alexander Navalny, the you know, Russian opposition leader, publicly on social media. He has been a really outspoken political advocate um, in Russia. And if you know anything about Russia, generally, if your political views do not align with the Kremlin, that can be a big problem. Um, and so that's kind of where that came out of. And so it's an, it's an interesting situation for a lot of reasons. Obviously, this is not something we generally see happening with North American athletes. And I think it's in a situation that is really difficult for a lot of North Americans um, to understand just in general, because the um, political and sociocultural positionality of Russian athletes, specifically Russian hockey players, and, and you know, these are the Yevgeny Malkins, the Alexander Ovechkins, the really high profile Russian hockey players, it's very different from the North American experience. And part of that is because hockey is intensely tied to, um, you know, Russian culture in terms of like ideas of masculinity. Um, you know, Putin is really big into hockey. That's a part of um, his branded image that he will put forth. Um, it's also just as a political position, um, you know, Russian hockey players, and we can look at it this in 2017, Alexander Ovechkin basically released this um, hashtag Putin team. Um, this really obvious political um, group supporting Vladimir Putin. And normally if, you know, if a North American player did this for, you know, Biden or whoever, you would think, oh, they're just doing that because they genuinely support this leader. It's totally of their own volition, whatever. But there were a lot of suspicions that Putin team was something engineered by the government and basically, and then I'm not speaking to, you know, I have no idea how Alexander Ovechkin like aligns himself politically. That's not what's in question here, but his construction of Putin team and him putting that on social media and other high profile Russian hockey players and athletes joining Putin team was, I was all very performative and was engineered by the Russian government as a form of, um, you know, political pressure and, uh, you know, campaigns. So what do you guys think about that so far? That was kind of a lot. Yeah, that led me to kind of have a question in the back of my mind as you're talking about this, um, which is, are there hockey players or maybe an MFA, 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 MMA fighters, Aiden, who... Um, leave Russia to play the United States and then just decide, you know what, 
I'm not going to go back to Russia, right? Because like, and I'm talking about people, I guess, who don't have a family. It really sounds like Panarin does. But like, I mean, are there cases of um, Russian players who come to the United States and try to get citizenship or try to get um, an asylum or, and I guess this is showing my ignorance of how international athletes work and just the immigration process in general. But, you know, that's just something I'm wondering about and, I'm curious to look up later is are there players who are just like once you leave if you don't have family or other ties that you're worried about um just trying to remain in america so you don't have to worry about you know russian politics or international politics no that's that's a perfect question because i think again that's where as a North American, it can be kind of hard to understand all facets of the situation because we just don't have that lived experience in, in Russia to kind of contextualize it. We don't necessarily have that cultural literacy, at the very least I don't, right? When, so in 2019, Artemi Panarin had a Russian interview with Slava Malamud, who is, um, he's a Russian reporter, he covers a lot of Russian hockey, whatever. Basically, he made what were considered to be anti-Putin remarks, um, pretty obviously. Um, immediately following that, there were accusations, literally, that he was a, a spy, like a Western spy. Um, and we and we kind of joke about that, right? We're like, oh, you know, spies, whatever. That's a really serious accusation. And then, and so that's kind of the fear is that you are somehow conspiring against the government. And there have been players in the past, not Panarin, who have um, disagreed publicly or privately and their families have been targeted. They have been blacklisted. Their families have been extorted by the government. They have, you know, you can get arrested just because the government says so. And there were some concerns when, uh, or excuse me, when Panarin went back recently to go deal with it, there were some concerns that, is he gonna be able to come back to the United States or is something going to happen and he's not going to be allowed to leave the country? And so where I think North American athletes and North Americans in general have a lot of freedoms, right? That's something that we really take for granted that isn't always the case in other countries. And so for Panarin, I mean, allegations like that, that you are working against the government, that's a really, really big deal because there aren't any protections in place to, um, to help you. I, I would say it's very interesting because in the case of MMA fighters, a lot of them do train in America. For example, uh, Habib trains uh, American, nope, I'm not going to say where he trains because I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want anyone to get mad at me. But he trains with like Daniel Cormier and Luke Rockhold. He trained where Cain Velasquez trained, who are all American. So it's not com uncommon for them to train in America. But I would say I can't think of a prominent Russian fighter who ended up living in the States. And there's also been a very prominent Russian fighter that now works for the state and is in government. So it's... I don't know how it is with hockey, but I would not say that happens very often. There does seem to be a very strong relationship with Russia. I think mainly because they are so involved in the athletics. It's not like in America where if you play sports in America, you have no relationship to the state really. 
even when you play in the Olympics, you really don't have a relationship to the state. Whereas in Russia, it's a totally different system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree. I can't think of a, I'm sure there's some who do live in the United States, but I mean, that's a really tough situation to be in just, you know, emotionally. I mean, that's your home country and, you know, ideas of patriotism and cultural belonging are really different depending on where you grow up, right? We have a really socialized idea of patriotism that is only concentrated in the United States, but that's a different experience if you're from Russia. Um, and so, yeah, Aiden, you're totally right. There's, it's a really strong tie between sports and the government because it's all subsidized by the state, but also just, I mean, on a personal level. And that's hard to, you know, to leave your home country where you grew up and where your family is and your friends are and where your language is spoken and all of your cultural behaviors and attitudes and traditions and come to an entirely different country and not feel comfortable or safe going back to your home country. I mean, like, that's an awful situation. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. And I didn't mean to undersell or undermine the, uh, the challenges that people face um, having to be in that situation. And I guess it's not um, me telling, saying that, oh, it's easy to just, like, hate your country and move away and you shouldn't love your country. I think, you know, it's good to love your country if only for the fact that you recognize that you want it to be the best possible version of that it can be. Um, but I think when I said that, like, pack up your bags and ditch, and <laughs> was less about if what you want out of life is to be a world-famous athlete and to be one of the best competitors in your field, and you have so much other baggage and, and stressors, stress factors, that's just making it so the game is just not fun for you anymore you don't get enjoyment out of it anymore I guess you know are there players that just say I it's too much and try to separate themselves from the state or try to leave the sport or try to move away entirely and and I guess it just doesn't sound like that's the case though Mm -hmm. no totally a hundred percent and it's, and that's where it's kind of, I use the word smear campaign and that was a word that was coming up or a phrase that kept coming up um, just in the reporting of this events is that it, it is far reaching. This was a character attack um, on Panarin. And it, it absolutely also affects their standing in you know, Russian social spaces. Um, and what he may be able to do after his hockey career is over. If he were to go back to Russia, would he be able to, you know, a lot of athletes. So um, maybe I should clarify this a little bit. Russian hockey is subsidized by the government. It is controlled by the government in a lot of spaces, right? It, which is different than how it is in the United States. So if he has um, gotten on the wrong side of the government, his future in hockey beyond just playing is suddenly in question and much more limited and what he's able to do. Um, and so there is for a lot of Russian athletes, this kind of idea of buying favor for the, uh, you know, from the government. Um, and that was one of the things, kind of a speculation. I want to make this clear. This is a speculation, but Yevgeny Malkin, super high profile, um, in the mid 2000s, he was drafted to the Pittsburgh Penguins in 2005, I think, 2004 maybe, but he wasn't able to play until 2006. 
because his um, Russian Super League team wouldn't let him come to the United States. They forced him into short-term contracts over and over to the point where he went with his team to Finland, um, disappeared, and showed back up on American soil six days later to play for the Pittsburgh Penguins. He, he had to leave like that. Um, he wasn't able to just, you know, terminate his contract with the Russian team and by extension, the Russian government and come to the United States, he had to leave that way. And so for a lot of people seeing him sign the Putin team was kind of an idea of him sort of buying back that Russian favor and kind of um, trying to get back into good graces because there is that political falling out when a player, you know, is, leaves Russia in such a, um, you know, in such a way. I know for Panarin that his family was a very big concern for him, that his family was still in Russia. And I, I don't know if anyone said it explicitly, but I remember when I read about it, a lot of people were like, he needs to go. He may, he may be trying to get his family out of the country because they may be in danger. So there's, there's a lot in play. Yeah. That was one of the big things. Yeah. I think there was, and that was, yeah, I saw that too. That was also the thing was he's going to, make sure that there aren't any issues that would, you know, harm his family. And I, and maybe some of them came back to the United States with him that I don't know, but yeah, you're right. It was his family. That was a really big concern. Um, you know, in the past 10 years, we've seen a lot of more like younger hockey players coming to North America to play in the junior leagues, um, um, and get drafted from the junior leagues versus, you know, people like Evgeny Malkin who were drafted, um, you know, out of the KHL or, you know, at the time it was the Russian Super League. And so we're kind of seeing this shift where in order to play in the NHL, which is the largest um, hockey league in the world, a lot of young players are choosing to come over when they're much younger to play in the junior leagues and kind of work up that way. Obviously that's not to say everybody does that where we're definitely seeing that shift but i'd be interested to hear what aiden has to say about mma fighters because i feel like that's um a community we don't hear about so often yeah absolutely so i kind of have i've constructed a small crash course on russian mma that i'm going to present um i also there are video links i'm sure we can put them in the description but i'm going to refer to certain videos so if we want to all get that pulled up, I, I mean, I, I really put a lot of work into this because I, I feel like to go off what you said, when you think of like what sport are Russian people good at, it's hockey, but we're really kind of in the middle of a wave of dominance from Russian MMA fighters, specifically Dagestani MMA fighters that I can't recall a time in the sport where a certain region has been so dominant unless you want to like go back to the early days, UFC one, when it's just the Gracie family kicking everyone's ass with, with jujitsu. So when you're talking about Russian MMA, you have to start with Sambo, which is their regional martial art, essentially. You know, when you look at like a lot of fighters from Brazil, they practice Brazilian jujitsu. That's what they do down there. Sambo was this, I actually just found this out the other day, was invented on the orders of Vladimir Lenin when he was like, we need to train the Red Army how to fight. So he had someone create this academy to figure out how to make them fight 
the most effectively. Um, now the pioneers of Sambo, there's a lot of names that I'm going to butcher here. Uh, that's the one thing I forgot how to do was look up how to pronounce everything. So I'm, I'm very sorry if any Russians are listening to this and I'm just butchering names. Um, so Sambo was essentially pioneered by two people, Viktor Spirin Spiridonov and Vasily Okshapov. Now Okshapov actually studied under Kano Jigoro, who was the essentially the inventor of judo, which is the base for a lot of martial arts. Um, so yeah, it's it. There, there's a lineage here. This this is a, a very well respected martial art. It essentially combines everything that was going on at the time. Now Brazilian jiu-jitsu was kind of in its infancy at the time. I may be a little off with that, but it hadn't really spread yet. It was very contained within Brazil. So Sambo really was developed from judo, jiu-jitsu, uh, catch wrestling, and then a lot of the native wrestling styles that were going on in the region at the time. Uh, one thing I do want to note, because I know we brought up spies earlier, but Akshapov actually died in prison because he was accused of being a Japanese spy in the Great Purge. So this really does run deep. Like there's a lot of very serious consequences, even if you do a lot of great things for the Russian state. So there's not, you can't really play around. But yeah, Sambo is really what gives Russian fighters an edge over everyone else. It's a very complete martial art. Um, something like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which I would say for a long time was the dominant base for mixed martial arts because you're able to get somebody on the ground and choke them out. When the UFC started, nobody knew how to do that. So it's, it was totally revolutionary. Sambo kind of teaches you everything, especially when they develop combat Sambo, which is pretty much just mixed martial arts on a mat. You could strike, you could kick, you could do takedowns. So you're really fully prepared to be a fighter. Now, I kind of broke this down into like uh, past, present, and future. A, a, a crash course on some of the greatest fighters. And I feel like if we're going to start with Russian MMA, uh, we have to start with Fedor, who really, in my opinion, put Russian MMA and Sambo on the map. Um, he is widely considered to be the greatest heavyweight of all time. And he was dominant in a way that I don't think we've seen since. And I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. I'll have to edit this. I feel like I'm just rambling. So no, 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 you're good. Okay. Um, I mean, the world of MMA is so strange to me. And I don't know anything about it. So I'm just soaking it all up. Okay, okay. So I'll start. So Fedor, to put it just to put it bluntly, he was undefeated for 10 years. He was a 10-year stretch where he was 28-0. He beat four UFC champions. He beat the Pride heavyweight champion. Pride was the main uh, promotion in Japan at the time. It was the best promotion in the world for about a five-year span until eventually folded. He beat their champ. He beat three kickboxing champions back when kickboxing was at its peak, and he beat two Olympic medalists. Um, arguably the most dominant run we've seen, especially at heavyweight, where you can really get knocked out with one punch. It's very hard to win maybe five fights in a row at heavyweight, let alone 28 consecutively. So I've really broken this down. Out of these 28 fights, I've picked three. Three to show you why he is considered to be the greatest of all time. So we have to start with the fight against Noguera. Now, Noguera was the pride heavyweight champion at the time. 
and he was a jujitsu guy. And this was at the time where jujitsu was still like really scary to a lot of people because when jujitsu was first introduced to the mainstream at UFC one, nobody really knew what was going on. And everyone still thought like, Oh, well, this guy's really jacked and strong. So he's going to just beat everybody up because he's really jacked and strong. But jujitsu takes all that out of the equation. You don't need to be strong to be good at it. You just need to know what you're doing. And Nogueira was and is arguably one of the best at jujitsu for the heavyweights of all time. You don't want to mess around with him on the ground. Now, in the clip I have here, Fedor is in his guard, which is like the worst place you want to be with the jujitsu guy. He could do whatever he wants at that point. He could put you in a triangle. He could flip you over. He could transition. You don't want to be in Nogueira's guard. It's one of the worst places you could be in that time. It's probably one of the worst places you could be period in like 2003 when this fight happened. So Fedor gets in his guard and just absolutely kicks the shit out of him. Like it's nothing. Like it's just, he just gets in there and it's just absolutely fearless and just beats him at his own game. I can't, I, I don't know how to describe it to you. It's like hitting a grand slam off prime Randy Johnson or something. You know, it's like that, that it's insane. Nobody had done that to him before period. So Fedor wins the pride heavyweight title. And then he, he wins a few more fights. He wins a lot more fights. Uh, Then we get to Crow cop. Now Crow cop is probably top five heavyweight of all time. I would say Nogueira is maybe top 10, but Crow cop is the best striker at heavyweight, period. Now, this one is a little bit more like, you need to really, like, this is very technical, so I'll try to explain it. So he's a kickboxer, kickboxing champion, one of the greatest kickboxers ever. So going into the fight, the whole thing is, well, how is Fedor going to stop his striking, specifically his left high kick? His left high kick was so brutal, he had a catchphrase that was right leg hospital, left leg cemetery. He just brutalized people with his left high kick like (laughs) oh geez one of the most just insane things in the history of mixed martial arts it's an absolutely legendary kick i'm just watching this clip now on youtube that you pulled up and this dude is just like kicking a full grown-ass man essentially the neck that's how how high this dude is kicking oh my gosh and the force behind it is ridiculous now that's croca so fedor is not only is he eating that kick he's blocking it but then he's kicking inside to Krokop's other leg, essentially to neutralize it. Now, most people wouldn't even mess around with that kick. They would just try to take him down. But Fedor just stood with him and essentially beat him at his own game. And he won the fight. This is probably the highest level heavyweight fight ever. And this happened 15 years ago. I think you can only say recently with Daniel Cormier versus Stipe Miocic that we even approached that kind of level. You know, the one thing you have to consider with Fedor is that, like I said before, the heavyweights, you don't really have to be that good, for lack of a better term. Uh, I love my, my heavyweights. They're a great division, but you don't have to be good. There are a lot of fighters like Derek Lewis who just punches really hard, and he can land one punch and the fight's going to be over. But Fedor was just so proficient that he has to stand out because there's just not that many people like him at heavyweight. And then the last thing I want to show was the Randleman fight. I would say in those that one run, 28-0, this was the most trouble he's been in. 
So I think it's the first link here. It's chill. It's the second link. I mean, I don't watch MMA. Yeah. I don't know any of these moves. I don't know really what's going on. But I'm watching the second video and watching who I'm assuming is Kevin Randleman pick up Fedor and just kind of chuck him into the ground. Just picking him up and just chucking him into the ground. And I'm like, how do you not wake up in the morning and just be like, my whole body needs to be an ice pack. <laughs> my whole body, just one whole ice pack, please. So, uh, oh, keep going, I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, I guess... Could you explain what some of the rules are for MMA fighting and what the things you can or can't do in a heavyweight MMA fight? Because I'm literally just watching Fedor pin down Kevin and just punch him in the head. And I'm like, that can't be legal, can it? No, that's legal. Um, Yeah, heavyweight, uh, the rules in Japan were different at the time. Um, You could actually, at that time, this, this isn't allowed anymore. You could kick people in the head while they were laying down but there was also like no elbows like you couldn't elbow people the rules were very different um and they've been refined since to make it safer but in this clip essentially they're kind of fighting on the ground a little bit now randleman like a two-time ncaa champion he was a usc champion he's a wrestler and from the first clip i just we have to put this is the one clip everyone should watch if you just watch him jump he's jumping like three feet in the air like one of the most freak athletes i've ever seen in my entire life like just insane so he picks up fedor from behind if you watch pro wrestling he just german suplexes him but in real life he drops him right on his neck now if he did that to me i would probably just die instantly i my body could not handle that but fedor gets that now, this has happened before. You can pick people up and slam them. Usually it ends the fight. Uh, this happened a year or two ago with Rose Namajunas where she just got dumped on her neck and then the fight was just over. That was it. The fight was over. She got knocked out. We're done. Like, she lost her title. The fight is done. Fedor gets, in my opinion, worse than what happened to Rose because just gets slammed right on the back of his head. And then within the next 45 seconds takes top position over Randleman, puts him in a Kimura, taps him out. So how long does someone have to be on their back before the match is over? Is it just, does it just keep going until the 10 minutes is over? Or is there a point where they stop the match? It just keeps going. Yeah, you could you lose via decision, knockout, or submission. So if it goes all the way, the judges decide. But what happened here, how Fedor won the fight, is he tapped him out. With oh, okay. Um, is there a reason why, why, why he's footless? Why he's, I mean, sackless. <laughs> um, because the other dude's wearing shoes and Fedor is just not. So back in the day, once again, the rules have been much more unified now, but this was like maybe 10 years after the sport had been invented. So it's kind of like the wild west. <laughs> uh, you could, you used to be allowed to wear shoes, but then you couldn't kick. Okay. So if you wanted to wear shoes, you could wear shoes, but then you couldn't kick. So like, if you go back to the Crocot clip, he's not wearing shoes, so he could kick. Randleman, because he's a wrestler, he wants that grip. So that's why he has shoes on. But that means he can't kick. So he's losing a weapon with that. Oh, okay. That's interesting. That's an interesting uh, piece of strategy there to decide between shoes and no shoes. It's no shoes and you can kick. 
Yeah, you can't yeah. wear shoes anymore. Okay. Shoes are not allowed. But you can <laughs> kick all you want. You can kick all you want now. <laughs> the sport's a lot more boring. The rules are very, very simple now. Well, no one's getting kicked in the heads, but I and I guess that's a good thing now. No, you could still do that. You just can't do it on the ground. It's a very violent sport. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was it was a crazy time. It was a lot different. Um, That's so Russian, especially compared to now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think if you're going to talk about Russian MMA, you have to talk about Fedor. I mean, if you're going to talk about MMA, you have to talk about Fedor. He's, you know, one of the greatest, if not the greatest of all time, and he really put Russian MMA on the map. Um, now, in the time between him and the next person, Habib. Um, I'm probably blanking on some Russian fighters, but I would say if we're going to go lineage, we would go Fedor and then now into Habib, who I would assume most people know who he is. He's pretty popular. Um, probably the second most popular guy in the sport uh, before Connor. Um, now he was a two-time combat sambo world champion. Now he is from Dagestan, which I'm not going to get into the whole relationship between Dagestan and they're a Republic of Russia, but it's very complicated. I am not a Russian history expert and I'm already rambling. So let's not get into that, but look into it. It's very interesting. Um, But they're very known for wrestling specifically. They just kind of breed wrestlers all the time. And Khabib was wrestling since he was a little kid. He actually, and I am not joking, he did wrestle a bear when he was a kid. Wait, they wait, had what? him wrestle a real life bear. They had him wrestle a, I'm sorry, what? Probably one too. I mean, knowing Khabib, <laughs> he probably kicked the bear's ass. So could be right. Yeah, no, he wrestled a bear. Um much like Fedor, just utterly dominant, 29 oh. and 0. There's like no moving on from this other than like a total subject change because you can't like he wrestled a bit like that's end of end of conversation. Hold up. You're telling me that the meme of Poon wrestling a bear actually has a precedent and actually it's based on something. He, I mean, I'm pretty sure that he actually wrestled a bear. No way. No, absolutely. No way. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, no, he really did wrestle a bear. It doesn't surprise me. Oh, my God. My mind has been blown. Yeah. Wrestled a bear. Okay, so but God did not put bears on this planet for us to test our own arrogance and say we're going to take one on mano y mano and just wrestle with one out of the wilderness. Habib's just built different. They're just wrestling bears out there. (laughs) They're just wrestling bears. Okay, but are we talking like, what kind of bear are we talking about here? Like black bear, brown bear, polar bear? Is there a specific bear that Russians like to fight over? Like, do they have a preferred wrestling bear? I assume it's something native to Dagestan. Golden bear, sun bear, koala bear, panda bear. There's so many bears out there to test our own arrogance against and test our mettle. I'm just really curious about, you know, could I take on a bear now? A, a red panda. A red panda. They're, they're I don't think I could take on a red panda. I mean... That's the only bear I could take on. Well, I have seen blue bear bears, <laughs> and I would panda. say that... I wouldn't want to take on a koala bear because that little koala bear is feisty and would punch me in the face. Are koalas bears? I mean, they're marsupials, but uh, colloquial speaking, uh, they're kind of bears. Oh, oh, I thought I was like, oh my god. Hold up. Is Ice Bear anyway based in MMA fighting? Because no. if so, I think I've unlocked the secrets to Cartoon Network. I think, not. like, <laughs> I think, like, yeah. I mean, if we're if we're going off Wee Bear Bears, I don't know if I'd want to fight Panda or Ice Bear. That's one of the two. <laughs> I wouldn't want to fight Grizz. So, 
wrapping it back, I guess, back to what we were talking about. Khabib, right? MMA fighting. Khabib. So yeah, he wrestled a bear. That's I should have I should have ended with the bear thing, but he did wrestle a bear. Look, R- Russian MMA is just it's just crazy because not only did he wrestle a bear, he's probably the highest level grappler we've ever seen in the UFC. He would just drown people on the ground. He would just get you to the ground and that was it. You couldn't do anything. He's lost one round in his whole career, which is ridiculous and even the round he lost uh he lost to connor but connor was cheating he cheated so much in the fight. i'm not going to get into that but well, um, no, wait wait you gotta get i'm, I'm into more it somewhat. of a you gotta get into it somewhat <laughs> uh he was grabbing the fence a lot he was grabbing habib's gloves which you can't do he was getting in his shorts which you can't do he was just like so many he he tried to knee him in the head while he was on the ground which you can't do anymore um grabbing him like how just like by his waistband yeah, no, like kind of like I'm from the yeah, just like trying to snag him because like if if he can't move and he can't get his hands, then he there's not much he can really do. So it's just trying to limit it in any way. So like just trying to make Habib's movement limited, or so that like you know grabbing the fence so that way he doesn't get taken down as easily. So stuff like that. Cool, cool, cool. cool. So it looks like I know what my homework assignment is. Uh, next time we meet, I'm going to go out and wrestle a bear. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking forward to hearing about it in episode five, topic TBD. Yeah, you might have only two hosts next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and one of them might be the bear. We'll see. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs>